0: to you by Lifetree at paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com. So my name is Rick, I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit, and a couple years ago, The Jesus-Centered Life, and editor of this beautiful Bible that's sitting right in front of me right now, The Jesus-Centered Bible. Uh, that was a massive team effort that took two years to create The, the Jesus-Centered Bible. If you don't already have one, what are you waiting for? You've got to get a jesus Center Bible. If you like this podcast and you love the heart of Jesus, this Bible is constructed especially for you. It's for people that want to be immersed in the presence of Jesus no matter where they're reading in the Bible. So there's like eight or nine special features in this Bible, some of them that have never been in any Bible anywhere ever. We didn't know that when we were doing it, we just discovered it after the fact, but. There are things in this Bible that aren't in any other one that will help draw you to Jesus. So we'll put a link to the Jesus-Centered Bible. It comes in um, like four cover colors, and you can get it hardback or softback. If you're a Jesus lover, I don't know why you wouldn't have this Bible in your house, even if you have a beloved one that you've uh, always used. This one can be a, a kind of a companion to it, because it has uh, it has things that are that will really... Um, add to your Bible reading experience. So there you have it. There's my plug for the Jesus Center Bible. So today we're continuing our month-long run of episodes that focus on the shockingly tender aspects of Jesus. Uh, In June, we paid attention to the ways and and the hows of when Jesus was tough with so many, and there's plenty of examples of that. But here's something surprising. Um, He got into more trouble very often by treating some people tenderly, uh, some people that he wasn't supposed to treat tenderly, he did, and that got him into even more trouble. Like, it was even more scandalous when he treated people who, who the, the culture, and especially the power brokers, said you shouldn't pay attention to, when he not only paid attention to them, he treated them with extraordinary kindness. He got into a lot of trouble doing that. So this whole month, we're going to be exploring the ways in which Jesus was tender, and how those ways uh, filter into our everyday life. So, today, my co-conspirator on the podcast, Steph Hillberry, joins me.
1: Hey, everyone!
0: It says in my notes here that she's supposed to greet you. So,
1: greetings.
0: Do you know any other language other than English? Not really. Okay. I mean, I just took a shot. I, I can thought...
1: occasionally can fake French. It's quite persuasive. Really? Mm-hmm. So.
0: Give us an example no, of your fake do French. It. It's See, too I much knew pressure. I knew she couldn't it's do it in my, the moment. I can't uh, do it. I can't do fake French either. <laughs> my wife, my wife by the way insists that she learned French when she was in high school, but then when we ever ask her about it, she just says the names of French people in a Frenchy way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess nobody really does <laughs> know French except the French. So, <laughs> yeah. So now that we've got that out of the way, so today we're going to focus on uh, a person in the Bible that you've uh, probably everybody in the world has heard of, but very few people have ever paid attention to. That's a funny way of putting it, but we've all heard of this guy, but very few of us ever pay attention to this guy. His name is Thomas. So what's the first word that pops into your head, Steph, when I say the name Thomas?
1: Well, doubting Thomas.
0: Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And this is why we all know him, because... Mm -hmm. Doubting Thomas has become a thing. It's a phrase. It's a meme. It's a it's a a way of referring to someone who habitually doubts, right? So, in our mind, Thomas has been reduced down to a person who consistently doubts. That's what he does. He must be that way all the time. He's just a doubter. Um, and we treat people in the Bible like this all the time. Uh, Steph and I were talking about this earlier this morning. The people in the Bible like Peter, who's we, we, our shorthand for him is he's an impetuous, loose cannon. That's what Peter is, and he's that way all the time. That's what we think of him. Or John, the Apostle John, is the favorite of Jesus. He's the disciple Jesus loves. So he's, he's sort of a metrosexual of the group. Uh, I
1: picture him with, like, Fabio hair. I yeah, don't know Yeah,
0: exactly. <laughs> and, and smoldering eyes. Yeah. That's so John is the favorite. Nathaniel is the smart aleck. Simon is the revolutionary, um, and Thomas, well, he's the doubter. So this is a way, this shorthand way of describing these people really keeps us from really understanding these people, we, um, and we, therefore we don't understand the story, therefore we don't understand Jesus. Uh, it, uh, it's important to slow down and pay ridiculous attention not just to Jesus, but to everything that surrounds him, so that we have an accurate picture of who these people are so that we understand what these interactions are really all about. And so I, I thought it would be important for us to kind of kick, kick this off, this exploration of Thomas and Jesus's encounter with him, that one Thomas, this nickname, Doubting Thomas, that's what we're going to explore today, because today is uh, about how Jesus responds to doubt, and it's not what you think. Um, so let's get to know get to know Thomas just a little bit outside of that last kind of extended encounter he had with Jesus after the resurrection, when Thomas said he needed proof of it. So in John chapter 11, there's this fascinating uh, story, which is one of my favorites uh, in the New Testament, that we have focused on in the podcast many times before. It's where Jesus intends to go back into Judea to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead, um, he's gotten word that he that Lazarus is sick, and Mary and Martha want him to come right away, and instead he delays his trip three days. Um, the disciples think uh, erroneously at the beginning that he's delaying the trip because he's scared, because the last time they were in Judea, um, he barely escaped with his life because people were trying to stone him. And so he tells his disciples, nope, we're going into Judea, um, Lazarus needs us, um, he eventually says well Lazarus has fallen asleep and his disciples were like well Jesus he'll wake up again why do we have to go and risk our lives in Judea just because Lazarus is asleep and Jesus says no you don't understand he's dead and we're going to go uh, we're going to go raise him up from his sleep quote unquote so he insists that he's going back to Judea and he and he basically says to his disciples come on come on with me and Thomas is the one who speaks up to his fellow disciples who are wondering whether they should go, and he says, let's go to and die with Jesus. So uh, Steph and I will talk about these little vignettes in just a second, but there's there's one thing to know about Thomas. He's the one that said, hey, if Jesus is going to die, let's go die with him. In John chapter 14, uh, Jesus tells his disciples—this is at the Last Supper—that he's going to go away, and that he promises that he's going to prepare a place for them, and that they're going to know the way to get there, where he's going. And, and Thomas is just confused. He's like, what? Where, where are you going? We, uh, here, here's what he says, we don't know, Lord, where you're going. We have no idea. So how can we know the way? And Jesus then responds, I am the way. So this moment, an, an honest moment between Thomas and Jesus, where Thomas just says, hey, I know we're supposed to get this, but I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't have any idea what you're saying right now. <laughs> are we supposed to follow you? And then Jesus very helpfully says, Oh, well, you follow me by just understanding that I am the way, Thomas.
1: Jesus, nobody knows what you're talking about right now.
0: Right. Yeah. So tradition also holds that Thomas later on became the first missionary to India, and he was actually martyred in India. He was killed. Um, That's how his life ended. Uh, So he was the first missionary to India, which, wow, I can't imagine being the first person who knows Jesus and lands in India hoping to share with the the enormous population of India the truth about Jesus, and you're the very first person to ever utter his name there. That that was Thomas. Um, And he's also, at the very end of the Gospel of John, he is with Peter and a few others when they go out fishing for the night. Um, again, they're locked in some confusion, and, and uh, they're upset about the events that have happened with the crucifixion. The resurrection has uh, happened, but that's still confusing to them, they're not quite sure what's going on. And the only reason we have a hard time understanding that is we weren't in their shoes at the time, where a resurrection had never happened before. So, so to try to understand what's going on, even though Jesus was clear about what he said was going on, of all the miracles they've seen, of all the incredible things Jesus has done, they've never seen anything like this before, where Jesus is a God resurrected among them. So at the very end of the Gospel of John, the disciples go out fishing because they don't know what else to do. <laughs> they, they don't know what their way forward is at this point, point. and this is the story where they see Jesus on the shore cooking breakfast for them, and uh, Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore, and they all have breakfast with Jesus. Well Thomas was there, he was one of the guys on the boat at the end of that time, and that's pretty much what we get of Thomas in the Gospels. He was also called the Twin, or in the Greek it's, it's Didymus, um, so apparently he had a twin brother or he looked like somebody else in the group, or we don't really know why he was called the Twin, but that was his nickname. So, Steph, uh, just based on these little s- snippets and paying ridiculous attention to the context and what must have been true about Thomas based on these things, What are some things we we think we know about Thomas just based on this little bit?
1: Well, I I feel like based on these short little stories, that he was the one who just kind of said the thing like out loud that he was thinking. Like he he strikes me as not being the he he doesn't have a lot of nuance or subtlety. He's just kind of like, well. Jesus is going to die, let's go. Although I will say, that comment, I think we associate more with something Peter would do. You know, like, oh, we're in, let's do it. But I, I don't think that we—it's funny that we remember Thomas for doubting, but not for this statement, because this is a very kind of impassioned, bold, I'm all in kind of statement. Yep. But we don't call Thomas, like, all in Thomas.
0: Which is probably a better name for him. Probably because, so. You know, if you think—let's just think about that one encounter— it's so profound if you if we slow down and consider what would have to be going on inside a person to say that. He believes that Jesus could very well be killed if he goes back to Judea, and by association he believes he could be killed. So how much would you have to believe in someone to say, I'm willing to go right into the jaws of death and risk my life, uh, if you think about the contemporary story, like... Um, Just in the last few days uh, uh, before we were recording this, these 12 kids in Thailand and their soccer coach were rescued out of these caves. And the rescue divers, if you paid attention to the news about this story and what the rescue divers had to do in order to get all of them out there, it's unbelievable. And one of them died Mm -hmm. early on in the process because he ran out of oxygen when he was trying to set oxygen tanks along the route. Well, think about what you would have to do as a rescue diver— to say, I'm going to go in to this uncharted cave system, see if I can find these kids and bring them out, Um, and you're choosing then to risk your life. Is it worth your life to go after it? You'd have to be a passionate, determined, committed person, and in this case, Thomas would have to deeply believe in who Jesus is Mm. and what his mission is about, or he would never risk his life to go back into Judea with him. And he's trying to rally the rest of the disciples to go, too, so he's clearly also a leader. He's not just a guy on the sidelines, he's he's speaking up to the whole of the disciples and rallying them to go, let's go, come on guys, let's all die together. So I think you're totally right when you said it's normally something we would ascribe to Peter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a lot of boldness in what he what he says here. And then the the fact that he goes out fishing at the end of the Gospel that whole thing is is really the kind of the core group of the disciples. Clearly Thomas was one of the main, one of the go-to guys amongst the disciples. He was counted on by others, he, he was in the core group, I guess is a way you could say. And then later on, what we know about him is, man, the courage to be the first missionary to India. Talk about commitment. Um, so all of this sort of flies in the face of the doubting Thomas kind of impression we have of him even the the fact that um, he doesn't understand what Jesus is asking and instead of you know a lot of people in the room when I, I can imagine this you know Jesus says something and nobody understands it <laughs> but nobody but, wants but to everyone's speak
1: up kind of nodding. Mm-hmm, yeah mm-hmm, huh?
0: yeah I got so, that so yeah. So deep. Mm-hmm. yeah oh yeah I see that Jesus <laughs> and Thomas is the only one who says uh
1: I don't know what you're saying what the heck
0: <laughs> So,
1: I feel like I would have liked him.
0: Yeah, he's. I mean, he's. You couldn't. You don't say that he has no filter, but he's also not afraid to speak up. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a real person, and he'll speak up instead of playing the game. He speaks up. So there's some stuff we know about Thomas, and that um, helps us before we read this famous section in John chapter 20, of where he encounters Jesus uh, after the resurrection. All of that helps us to get a better grip on who this guy is. So just to kind of set the stage in John chapter 20, actually, if you're listening um, now and you're not driving a car, it'd be a fantastic thing to flip open to John chapter 20, because that whole chapter is um, uh, this story about Thomas, everything that happens in the chapter before this encounter is important to understand in this famous encounter. So um, it's early in the morning. Um, and the uh, Mary Magdalene had, had gone to the tomb and it was empty and she had run and found Simon Peter who grabbed another disciple and they uh, probably the disciple John, uh, and they they went to the tomb to see what was going on and um, they they noticed that the tomb was empty and uh, they, remembered that Jesus said that he would rise again, but they're still confused, and they went home, they don't really know what's going on, and while Mary uh, was standing there, um, she's upset, and she, and she encounters Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who assures her that he is, in fact, alive again, and he has this kind of encounter with Mary. So all of this is going on, but the disciples are all gathered together, and you can imagine... They just killed your leader. Um, somehow it looks like maybe, what, he might be alive again? We don't even know, have a category for that. They're still trying to figure that out and whether they really trust the witness of the women who have been the ones closest to this whole situation and have been the ones saying he's, he's gone. And Mary has a direct encounter with him. They still don't know what really is going on, so you put yourself in that room they're confused, they're a little bit afraid, Um, they could easily be targeted that very day. Like the knock on the door, drag them all off to jail, or drag them all off to their own cross crucifixion. This is the environment they're in. So let me just read to you this this now encounter with Jesus and Thomas. So one of the twelve disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we've seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, and place my hand into the wound in his side. Well, eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side, and don't be faithless any longer. Believe." My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. And then Jesus told him, Now you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. So there's the story. We kind of have this um, kind of aftertaste in this story of a little bit of shame because of what Jesus says at the end. Mm-hmm. Blessed are those who won't won't see me but it believed. And I think Jesus is really saying, I'm not going to... I'm not going to keep doing this. I am going to ascend to my father. I'm not going to bodily show myself for much longer. For the rest of history, people are going to have to believe in me without seeing without the ability to literally put their fingers in my wounds. So those people are really blessed. I mean, you guys get me right now, and that's fantastic that Thomas now you believe. So I don't really think he's shaming Thomas here. He's just pointing to the future and saying, Man, think about all the people that come after you who are not going to see me, and they're still going to believe. Look how hard it was for you to believe even when you see me, and think of all the people that come after you that won't have that benefit and are still going to believe and put their lives on the line. So he's really pointing to the future there. But here we see this famous encounter, and what what we pick up on is, that, well, Thomas wants evidence. It's a pretty charged atmosphere. There's a lot of stuff flying around, he's not sure what to believe, and so he doubts. Um, he he doesn't want hearsay, which is fascinating based on what we were just talking about, Steph, that here's a guy who wants direct experience. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want hearsay, he's not going to base his stuff off of somebody else's recommendation, he wants a direct experience with Jesus. That's another thing I like about him. Um, so everyone in the room is doubting. Everyone in the room is confused. Thomas is the one who blurts out, speaks out what others won't, which is, I'll believe when I have the evidence for it. I want to see him. I don't want to just hear about him. And so um, so everyone is struggling with what's happening, but Thomas is the only one who's really admitting to his struggle. He's, he's outing himself. Steph, you and I were talking today about what how what a powerful force doubt is, and how powerfully people respond to doubt. So uh, we have a visceral reaction to our own doubt, and we have a visceral reaction to other people's doubt as well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about um, what the trouble is that we have with doubt.
1: Sure. So one of the reasons that I thought this would be a great story about Jesus' tenderness is that I think doubt is so universal. Um, but I feel like as Christians, we shy away from owning the doubt that we're experiencing. I think we're real uncomfortable with it. And I think expressing doubt seems a little forbidden. And I say that because we do, I think that there's, there's an idea, you know, Thomas basically says, I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And I think that somewhere along the way, we kind of learned that there's sort of a hierarchy of faith. You know, like you've you've advanced, you have an advanced degree in faith if you don't need to see evidence and to still want to see something proven or to still have a doubt or to still come out and say, this isn't enough for me. I still have questions. For some reason, we feel like that's kind of like, well, you're not fully mature yet. You just haven't really arrived yet full arrival is when you don't need anything like that. And so I think that we, the, the trouble though is that we still have doubt. So we kind of have, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to elevate our faith to a, a level above doubt. And I think we give a lot of lip service to it, but it doesn't change some of the things we feel in our hearts. Mm. Um, and I, I love how Jesus responds to Thomas because I think it's a good it's a good permission giving story about the reality of doubt.
0: And one of the things that's this is going to sound funny, a little counterintuitive here, but uh, it was important that we kind of got to know Thomas a little bit outside of this story, um, because what we described was a person who was bold, who was committed, who passionately believed in, and loved Jesus. Um, That's the kind of guy we're talking about. He's not the same kind of guy we have in our head who just easily doubts. In fact, it's the opposite. I think um, somebody who reacts the way Thomas did, which is his friends say, hey, we saw Jesus, and he's like, no way, I'm not going on that until I have a direct experience with him, that person is an all-in person. He has invested his heart in it. If you invest only a little bit, Oh, okay, wow, that's incredible, guys. But if you're all-in, and everything in your life rides on this truth or not, you want to know yourself. And that's how I see Thomas here. He is—I love that you call him the all-in disciple, because an all-in disciple is—he's saying, hey, I gave up everything and risked my life for this man. I deeply believe in him. I am not going to be satisfied just by hearing your story about this. I have to see him with my own eyes, because I've invested all of myself into this. It's interesting when Jesus comes into the room, which has locked doors, by the way, so that's, by the way, the reason he has to say, peace be with you, is he just showed up in a room where there's (laughs) locked doors. So
1: (laughs) That's his way of being like... Now, don't be afraid, but I'm right here behind right. you. Right, exactly. Like, <laughs> I don't want to alarm you, that's right. but I'm standing right here. Right, so like Steph
0: and I are in a recording room right now that has all this like egg crating around it for sound and stuff, and and it's a kind of a small room. And if we're sitting here talking and all of a sudden a guy shows up behind <laughs> my shoulder that wasn't here before, it would freak us out. I mean, you'd be freaked out in the moment, and you'd be freaked out gone going. Like, how, how did you get in here? And so Jesus has to say immediately, peace be with you. These guys are already jittery, by the way. And then he immediately, the fir- very first thing he does is he turns to Thomas and invites him to do something intimate. He and, uh, Thomas, Thomas was using metaphoric language, I gotta put my finger in his wounds, I gotta know... He was really just saying, in a strong way, I've gotta know for myself. Jesus, in kind of a playful way, says, okay... I'll, I'll take that literally. Come here, touch my wounds. One of the things that I've talked about before on the podcast is that we always assume Jesus is scowling whenever he says something. But if you assume that he was smiling when he said this, these, these words, it changes the whole meaning. So what if he was smiling when he said to Thomas, hey, put your finger here, and look at my hands, put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, Believe. What if he said this playfully with a smile on his face instead of with a, with a finger wag at Thomas? What if Jesus actually respected Thomas for, for his all inness? Um, and what if he delighted in the way Thomas invested all of himself in this? So the real question here is so Thomas expresses some doubt some wrestling, some confusion, and it's all honest. It's out in the light. He's not behind the scenes, wringing his hands, talking to other people. He outs himself. I I have doubts about all this. So what does this mean for us to embrace doubt in our journey? So I was thinking about um, uh, some some things that may may not immediately make sense in connection to this, but these are the things that popped into my head. So uh, in the last month... The designer Kate Spade took her own life, um, so did the uh, food critic, TV personality, travel personality Anthony Bourdain took his own life. The, the two of them, what was shocking about them is they were both, uh, they both had all of the things we think we're all striving for. They had fame, money, power, they were beloved, uh, they had made a huge impact in the world, which was obvious, they lived exciting lives rich lives, interesting lives, and yet they took their own lives. And this is what confuses us. How can they have everything that we are all striving for and still not be satisfied, still be so sad and depressed that life isn't worth living anymore? It doesn't make sense. And I think part of it doesn't make sense because we think in such broad categories. We don't think about successful, powerful, influential people Um Struggling with great doubt about themselves or about life itself, we sort of excise that out because it doesn't seem to fit in our normal experience of a person. And I, Steph, I was telling you earlier today about one of my heroes is C. H. Spurgeon, the Victorian era pastor and preacher. He was the pastor of the largest church in England in the Victorian era, and uh, he used to preach to like eight thousand people a Sunday without amplification. They did multiple services, but um, he, he would preach to thousands of people every Sunday, and he was, for a time, one of the most famous people in the world. He's still the most published pastor in the history of the world. Um, his influence was so far-reaching, people would come from all over the world for half-hour appointments with him, where they would preach in front of him and he would give, him, give them, these young pastors, his critique. So he, he just his his uh influence in the christian church could not be overstated during the v- victorian era and yet um he struggled with depression his entire life one of the things that first drew me to him is uh, my friend greg steer uh as i was journeying uh, in my own journey toward a jesus centered life uh greg steer told me well you got to read about spurgeon because he was really the first jesus centered <laughs> Uh, guy. He was, he was the one who every sermon he ever preached somehow found its way to Jesus, and so that intrigued me, and I started uh, reading and learning more about Spurgeon, and he just fascinated me. Um, he was speaking my language. Um, he, he would have been a kindred spirit, had I been alive at the time that he was. I just love the way Spurgeon thinks, and the way that everything in his life pointed to Jesus. So how can a person like that struggle with depression? And doubt, it doesn't make any sense because he seems settled on who he is and who Jesus is, and yet he still has these debilitating doubts. Now some of this is, these are people who have a illness called depression, and it's not tied to circumstances, it's simply something you have to battle. But it's also true that it creates dissonance in us when we encounter someone who. Uh, We don't think should doubt, but they do, Um, and we try to edit that out, and we sometimes try to edit out of ourselves. So uh, how can a person have it all and still exhibit doubt? How can a person like Thomas, who is all-in and passionate and determined and committed, struggle with doubt? So, Steph, you were talking about um, the ways that we relate to doubt and even depression in our own lives that we sort of sugarcoat our our responses to people about this. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that.
1: I have been, I'm on Instagram quite a bit, and I really like to, I'm drawn to posts and captions that talk about life's challenges. I like to hear not only what people are going through, um, because it's just a good reminder for me that people are, are struggling, and Instagram especially, it's not all a shiny, happy place. Um, it gives me things to pray about, but I have observed with people when they often when they'll share really, honestly, kind of shockingly difficult things that people are going through. They'll share kind of, oh, this hard thing is happening or this difficult thing is happening or the last couple months have been hard because of this. They'll, they'll share that and then they'll occasionally someone will say, and I just don't understand and I'm just struggling. And they'll just leave it there. They'll leave it hanging there. More often, what I see is people saying, this horrible thing happened. I don't understand, but. And then they follow it with, but God is good. But things will work out. Everything is in God's hands. But I believe that God's got everything under control. And I feel like we, we feel this compulsion to kind of finish the sentence. Like It's not okay to end it with, you know, I'm really hurt. I'm hurt by this circumstance and I'm hurt by God. He's he broke my heart. I prayed to him about this and he didn't come through. And and then we just stop. We leave it there. And instead I feel like there's this pressure to finish the sentence with a a platitude or a I'm going to bolster my faith. And to me the more authentic response is just to leave it there. And I I think that we don't because Doubt is a little scary, and we don't. So,
0: so let me stop you there. Why is it scary?
1: I think it's scary because if you, if you're doubting, if your faith is shaken, then what does that mean? It, it, I think we feel pressure, like, well, I've gotta, I've gotta fix this. I can't let it get too far down the road of doubt and questioning. It's my job. To keep things together, it's my job to make sure my faith stays intact. If
0: you do let it get too far down the road, what is the fear behind the fear? What is it that we? What is the shadow that we're that we're frightened by down the road?
1: For me, in times of great doubt, I think I have feared that I'll lose my faith, which is such a defining aspect of my life. That I will lose my relationship so with you would, God. So
0: what you're really saying is you'd lose your identity. Lose if your that, identity.
1: lose my relationship. Lose, lose what I believe to be true, which is a, which is really a very scary prospect. Um, I also think that, you know we we're hardwired to impress others and we're hardwired to impress God. So I think there's also a part of us that feels like, well, God will be displeased with me if I doubt too much. You know, like to your point about Jesus' statement at the end, which kind of sounds like maybe he's sort of, you know, correcting Thomas like, oh, well, too bad for you, there's going to be better people than you who believe without seeing. I think we worry, oh, I'm, I'm letting him down. My faith isn't as strong as it should be, and therefore I'm going to finish the sentence with some faithful words.
0: Yeah. And I, I've mentioned before, too, that I, that uh, especially for men, men are hardwired almost at a default setting when they see uh, a problem um, that needs to be fixed— it's, it's almost impossible for them not to want to fix. There's a beautiful aspect of this, that men are wired to help in profound ways and to serve in sacrificial ways. It also obviously goes haywire in us. We, we are all the time uh, expressing that beauty in haywire ways. I do it all the time with my wife. Um, I overstep her boundaries by trying to help Or trying to fix her doubt or trying to fix her struggle. It's very difficult to sit and watch someone struggle and not do anything about it because part of our identity is we want to be the kind of people who help. We want to be the kind of people who love and care. And if we have no way of loving and caring for someone, we manufacture a way. So the platitudes and all those things are really our way of manufacturing. Something that we hope will relieve some of the dissonance we feel when someone we care and love is struggling, and we want to help. Uh, to do nothing seems to be of no, seems to be uh, identifying ourselves as people who don't help, if that makes sense. So, if you're struggling, and I simply listen, then I'm giving myself this feedback: it's faulty, but it's still I'm giving myself the feedback: I I'm not a helper, I can't help. I'm impotent. I'm not able to do anything to affect change here. So this dissonance that we are plunged into with ourselves and with others is really—it's not just rooted in men, but it's very strong in men. That, that that they just want to to help. And I've talked before on the podcast about um, a realization I've had over the last ten or fifteen years about um, the the poisonous danger of a transactional relationship with Jesus. That's where we subtly say, if I do this, then I expect you to do this. And a lot of people live their lives this way. It's sort of they have this thing inside, this, this kind of uh, balance inside that, as long as things seem to be fair, as long as things seem to happen the way they're supposed to based on what I've put into this, then I'm good. And it can really cover over a house of cards because a relationship that's built on transactions is is a house of cards, and I think sometimes we sense that with our doubts. We're protecting our house of cards because we know one little whiff of doubt could blow the whole thing over, and we don't want that to happen. So the way forward, obviously, is to build a relationship with Jesus that is not a house of cards. Uh, It does not depend on our faithfulness to him, it's dependent on his faithfulness to us,
1: well, and I think that, that was, that's my favorite part of this story, is Thomas comes with his doubts, he expresses them, I need more, I'm struggling and I need more. And it, Jesus does not require Thomas to figure this out on his own. He doesn't ask Thomas to, to conjure up the faith to take that step. He meets Thomas in his doubt, right where he's at, and he covers the gap. He comes to him, he physically moves into his space and says, I have what you need. And I think that's what, that is why I love this story, is that in your doubt, it is not your responsibility to somehow get your faith to a point where you can move through it. Jesus meets you right there. It's his faith, it's his grace and his kindness that fills in the gap from where your doubt can't stretch any farther. Your faith has its limitations and it's not big enough. His is big enough. And there's no shame there. There's no condemnation there. I mean, I love, I love what Rick says about him smiling. There's a smile there for you in your doubt. He, he lives for this. He died for this. His favorite thing is to meet you where you're failing and, and give you everything he has. That is, that's his deal. And I think that we don't need to be ashamed of our doubt, and we certainly don't need to pressure ourselves to have more faith than we do. Just live in the tension. Don't finish the sentence and let him show up.
0: I, I, you know, there, I have a really visceral personal example of this, a, a quick one. A couple of small groups ago uh, so it was a couple of weeks ago. I asked a um, whole group to kind of wander around our house and pay attention to whatever it is that caught their eye in our house, and then once they did, to stand in front of that thing, whatever it was, and just ask Jesus, "Is there a metaphor in that thing for something you need to tell me right now?" It was just a playful experiment, but I needed to do it first before I had them do it, so I could show them what I meant by this. So I did it while they were in groups discussing something, I wandered around our house, and I found this tree that my daughter Lucy had made, it's a, it's a tree made out of wire. It took her a long time to make this thing, it's all this wound wire with these branches coming out of it, and we have it sitting in our house, and I, that's what caught my eye. And I stopped, and I looked at it, and I said, Jesus, what, what do I need to know? What is this tree a metaphor for, for me right now? Is there anything that you're trying to tell me, because this is the thing that's captured me?" And it was one of those moments where I felt like Jesus spoke clearly to me. He said, Rick, um, your life has been about um, making wire trees. You've been spending a lot of effort and time and emotional commitment um, making your wire trees, and they're beautiful. But how about you stop and let me grow a real tree? for you. Let me do it. Mm. That tree is produced by your effort, but I make real trees, naturally tree, natural trees, organic trees. Why don't you watch me grow a real tree mm-hmm. in your life?" Well, this was a, like, it was, it was just like Jesus to say something tender and tough at the same time, because that's, that's what that was. It was a tough thing that he said tenderly, but it was an invitation, too, to not perform to to not come through, to not manufacture. And so the idea here is that we build a relationship with him that is really dependent on him more than it's dependent on us. So just to real quick contrast a standard that I think is fascinating, we, well, I often think of Paul as an example of, per, of a person who just never doubted, never had a struggle, was always on top of things. Man, what a hero. He handled the toughest stuff we can imagine with grace and faithfulness. He just didn't mess up. And we get some of this from, you know, actually some of the stuff he wrote in his letters. Like in Philippians 4, you've probably read this before, and you've probably had this embedded, if you've grown up in the Church, this was the standard that was sort of embedded in you. So he actually, in 4, starting in verse 10, he says... Um, how I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know you've always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Well, not that I was never ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I, I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it's with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little, for I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. So he's saying here, you know, I got it dialed down. You know, if I, I'm in a cell, in a jail cell, I'm good. If I'm at a banquet, I'm good. I've got it all figured out. And yet, it's the same Paul who says in 2 Corinthians, which is kind of the whole letter, is kind of a tough, raw, authentic letter that Paul is sending to, the, to believers in Corinth. It's the same Paul who says this, We think you ought to know, dear brothers and sisters, about the trouble we went through in the province of Asia. We were crushed and overwhelmed beyond our ability to endure, and we thought we would never live through it. In fact, we expected to die, but as a result—oh, this is so good—as a result of that, we stopped relying on ourselves and learned to rely only on God, who raises the freaking dead. And I added freaking to that, because I think that's the emotion that he was saying that way.
1: <laughs> RLT.
0: That's Rick right. That's, Lawrence that's the Rick Lawrence translation. He raises the freaking dead. He's trying to say that Jesus— is really powerful, so why am I depending on my own strength? We often think of Paul as somebody who is naturally gifted, naturally strong, and he was. But here Paul is saying to the the believers in Corinth, um, hey, I ran out of gas, I ran out of strength at some point, and I recognized I can't do this, I need to rely upon the strength of Jesus and stop relying on myself. So in that light, let's close this off, Steph, by talking about a little bit about our 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 own struggles with doubt, and then how we've dealt with those in ourselves, and how we've learned to, uh, or are learning to, respond to doubt in others.
1: Sure. Well, I definitely have um, experienced, I would say, a, a season, a long season of disappointments, like some near and dear to my heart. Um, things like not being able to have kids, sort of a biggie. Um, and these... These things have caused me to doubt God's character more than anything. I mean, I, I, I know that He's good. Like, those are words that I say. But I also say, full confession, full disclosure, that I struggle to believe in that goodness sometimes. And I, the Holy Spirit was talking to me the other day about how I've cultivated an expectation of being disappointed. Mm. When I pray for things that are really important to me, mm-hmm. I, I have cultivated an expectation that I, that God just really won't come through. Because I've had big things on the line that He's not come through. And when I say that, that prayer, like, God, you've broken my heart, that's a prayer I've prayed. God, you've broken my heart. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why I love this story of Thomas. Um, and the, the Holy Spirit along this whole time has always coached me to be um, as honest as possible and to be transparent and to say those things. And I think that I've been lucky to have his influence on me to not pretend that things are just okay. I think he's he's given me the ability to stop the sentence with, God, you've broken my heart, and not try to follow it up with, but everything's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I just kind of—maybe I'm a little stubborn that way. I just have refused to say that because that's not how I really felt. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and that I think that is definitely in the spirit of Thomas, who is trying to express how he really feels and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. He's not trying to— um, something onto the end that makes it all better. Mm-hmm. He's leaving it at that. And you can tell that Jesus really likes that about him. Mm-hmm. He responds to that. I was thinking about, um, I, I'm in my third year of leading this small group in our home, and I've created so many of these 90-minute uh, experiences for this group. I think uh, ju- we just did number 85 last night. And I've seen just some of the most miraculous, incredible things in this group over the course of three years. And yet, I recognize that every night I am racked with doubt. Is this the night it's all going to blow up? Is this going to be a disaster? Um, is what I think going to happen here just a, a ridiculous expectation? You know, it, do things go perfectly every week? No, absolutely not. But the fact that I'm racked with doubt reminds me of the subtle ways that I still—I just said it's not a good thing to lead a transactional relationship with Jesus, that's a house of cards. Well, I have my own house of cards. Of course all of us think in transactional ways, look, I poured all this effort into this, I I was creative as I could be, I'm good at this, this group has been incredible, and yet I doubt. Why? Because I'm not sure that that my circumstances— and the outcome of those circumstances are going to be commensurate with what I've invested, because I have past experience where it wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it creates this place of doubt in you. It doesn't. It doesn't mean that I doubt the heart of Jesus. No. Does it mean that I'm going to stop following Him? I can't. It's pr- too deeply wound into my identity. But does it mean in the moment that I'm really wrestling and struggling and try to climb out of my own little my own little holes? Um, Yes, absolutely, Uh, because doubt is a part of uh, the life of a person who's living from their heart. This is what I think is true. If you're living from your heart, then you're going to doubt, because living from your heart means that you've invested. You are all in like Thomas is all in, and because of that, there are times that are going to be disillusioning and confusing, because you're being honest. (laughs) And I think that's what you're saying too, Steph, about how you deal with it in yourself, you're honest. And I guess that's what I'd say, too, is that part of the the relationship we have with our own doubts is to out ourselves, to say it out loud, not just to churn inside. It's not enough to silently hold on to your doubts. You have to get them out in the open, and this is what Thomas does habitually. So he can point us the way, and whether you say it out loud in prayer, just you and Jesus— or whether you say it out loud to a friend that you can trust. Either way, it's, it's sort of what the Church has always advocated for us, that what this is what confession is. Mm-hmm. We often associate that with confessing our sins, but it also is simply, confession is simply getting what's inside out, getting the thing that we're hiding out. The doubts that we have inside we often hide. So either we get them out with Jesus, or we get them out with someone, that can handle our doubts, but it's important to get them from inside to out. And once they're in the light, something remarkable happens with our doubts. Once we get them out of the darkness into the light, they're still there, but the edge that they have, the power and leverage that they they have control over us, um, diminishes, at least does for me. So uh, th- that that's simple. Get your doubts out, um, either to Jesus or someone else. Uh, that's one way to deal with them in yourself. When you hear the doubts of others, Steph, what have you learned about how to respond to others who are wracked in doubt or sad or grieving?
1: Well, you just said, you know, share your doubts with someone who you feel is safe. And I would say be a safe person to for someone to share doubts with. Um, I think one of our reactions sometimes, especially when people we really love are doubting, it, it causes us to be a little anxious. You know, I'm thinking about a a mom, and she's got a teenage son or daughter, and that teenage son or daughter is confessing doubts, that can that can freak you out a little bit, you know? Um, and I think to step back a little bit from that anxiety, place your trust in the Holy Spirit and the work that Jesus does, and just listen to doubts without trying to correct them, without trying to provide a counter argument for why the doubt shouldn't be there, Without trying to sort of argue Jesus, point for Jesus, um, I think that just listening, um, acknowledging the doubt without fixing the doubt, and uh, be a safe place. I've had several friends who've gone through some pretty challenging seasons, and they've experienced levels of doubt and struggles with faith that they had never encountered before. And they were in a very scary place, and I, I felt very privileged to be one person in their life who just listened and said, I hear you. I, I get, of course you're feeling that way. Of course you're struggling that way. I completely understand, and I'm praying for you, and I'm going to tell you right now that Jesus is big enough. He will meet you, and you'll get through this. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's, that's a safe person with your doubt.
0: And, and I'll, I'll add this as the last thing here. Uh, uh, sometimes in these places of, of doubt that people have, and they, and they share them with you, they're also inviting you to speak into their doubt. Now, sometimes they're not, they just need to get it out. Mm-hmm. But if there's an invitation, and this is very much like Jesus, this is the personality of God, he he does not force himself on us, he responds to invitations. But if you are you have a friend who's inviting response, and uh, do you have anything to reflect back to my doubt, then I, I say in an artful way, in a sensitive way, sensitive to the Spirit, I mean, that you're reliant on the Spirit in this moment— What do I say back to this doubt? Um, uh, What truth do I mirror back to this doubt that isn't a platitude, that is somehow bedrock? The only way we respond this way is through a dependence on the Spirit, literally asking him, help me to respond, Spirit, the way you want to respond to this doubt. Now that could mean just silence, or it could mean you have a reflection back that actually does offer hope Mm -hmm. and a pathway out of that doubt or struggle that that person has, but really it's a response to an invitation. I am notoriously bad at this. Um, I sometimes manufacture my wife's invitation when she's never invited. (laughs) And so what's good is that she's honest, and she'll tell me, you know, I don't need that right now. I just need you to blank. And that's the other thing we can do to be helpful to others, is to tell people what we need. Uh, If we're going to express a doubt to someone else, tell them what we need. Don't assume that they know. And if all you need is for somebody to listen to you and to understand your struggle, then tell them that. But if you want want some reflection, some entry into your doubt, then tell them that too, so that there's no doubt about it. Uh, so there's a couple of things uh, at the tail end of this that you can think about relative to yourself, relative to others. Is there anything that uh, left on the table there, Steph? No, I think
1: that that covers. It. If you have additional thoughts, feel free. To find Jesus-centered on Facebook or Instagram, and share your experiences with doubt, your experiences with other people having doubt. We'd love to hear them.
0: And you can go to jesus.com and look for our podcast section in, in Season 3, Episode 29, and you can post your comments there as well. Uh, we love to hear from you, and we interact with what you say and what you put on the table. Don't forget, it's still summer, so you could pick up a copy of The Unreasonable Jesus for summer reading or spiritual grit. Both of them are perfect for small group times. I know a lot of I've gotten a lot of messages from people that are starting a spiritual grit book club this summer. They're all getting a copy of the book, and there's there's a, a small group questions at the end of every chapter. So, or you can just read it alone. Either one of those books, the Unreasonable Jesus or Spiritual Grit, are great for just a personal reflection during the summer. And look again, just a as a reminder, we're going to be talking more about this next month about our friends of God discipleship experience. It's a discipleship kit for churches, for those that want to go down the path of relational intimacy with God as a discipleship journey. Uh, I can't be more excited about this kit that's going to be coming out in uh, early September. So we'll be talking more about the Friends of God discipleship experience as summer gets on. So again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Life Tree subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts. We'll talk again next time.